Uh, a number of years ago, Karen and I had visitors from overseas who stayed with us. At the end of their visit, they wanted to pay us. We insisted it was our pleasure to host them. They were our guests. Uh, but after we left, we found the money underneath their pillow. We'd given our home and our food with no strings attached, no expectation of the favour being returned. It was grace. But they didn't understand. They felt they needed to return the favour. Now, that didn't really bother us. But from what I understand, in many cultures, that would have been quite an offensive thing to do. Uh, it would be shaming us to offer money when we'd given it as a gift. They didn't understand grace. Do you understand grace? Do you understand what it means to receive an undeserved favour from God, from anybody? To gain something that you haven't earned with no expectation of repayment? Have you experienced the joy of recognising how undeserving you are? But at the same time recognising the magnitude of the gift that you've been given? And then to respond, to show that you understand simply by being grateful rather than trying to repay it. Because most people don't understand grace. It goes against everything that people do and say and believe in. It's completely countercultural to accept something for nothing. We're suspicious that the offer is not really free, aren't we? (laughs) I am. We've got this free offer for you, they say on the phone. Yeah, sure, what's the catch? What do I have to do? Uh, Or else we receive it but we're uncomfortable about being in someone's debt. We feel like we have to repay the favour. We keep a record of it. Uh, We want to remain independent and not in anybody else's uh, debt. Being uncomfortable with grace isn't just something we see in everyday life either. It's in every man-made religion. Every religion, except for Christianity, is about how to earn, how to repay, how to achieve by doing something. The Buddhist Eightfold Path, the Hindu doctrine of karma, the, the Muslim code of law, the path that you follow, each of these is about earning approval. It's only Christianity that dares to make God's love unconditional. Grace. Do you get it? Many people don't. Jesus knew all about our inbuilt resistance to grace and so he often talked about it. He talked about a world that was full of God's grace where the Son the sun shone and the rain fell on the good and the bad alike. Where birds gathered seeds without paying for them, where wildflowers bloomed without being farmed, where you could enjoy them without having to pay for them. Jesus taught about grace, although he hardly ever used the word, but he told lots of stories about grace. Parables, the father who forgives his prodigal son even though The son has done nothing to deserve it, in fact has done everything to not deserve it. Or he tells the story of the crippled and blind who are invited to the banquet because the invited guests wouldn't turn up and all they need to do is accept the gift. 
or the king who forgives a servant a phenomenal debt with no payment required. And here in Luke 17, he's also teaching about grace. Once again, he's not using the word. We get three separate stories about how grace, uh, firstly he talks about how the way we offer grace affects other people, how we should respond with grace. And he talks about uh, grace and us, what grace means for how you view yourself. And then lastly, we see a living example of someone who understood grace and who responds the way Jesus wants. So Jesus begins in verse 1, he's talking to his disciples, it's impossible for stumbling blocks not to come. Things that trip you up. It could be sin, it could just mean um, stumble in some way. So People who try your patience, people who test your commitment, they're always going to come. People who will try to provoke you into slipping up, into sinning, it's always going to happen. If you really want to walk where I'm walking, says Jesus, you need to expect it's going to be tough. But at the same time, Jesus says, those people won't get away with it. They will be judged. People who cause my followers to trip and stumble will see justice. It would be better for them to have a millstone hung around their neck. Now, people normally read these verses, I think, uh, and we apply it to make sure we're not those people who are causing others to stumble. But I think Jesus is actually saying this to his disciples who are the ones who are walking over the bumpy ground. And so verse 2, rather than being a warning to us, is actually meant as an encouragement to us as we walk across that ground where we're uh, we're going to trip and and stumble. Uh, The road following Jesus will be tough, but if we've got our... uh, but Jesus has his eye on those who are making it difficult for us and they won't get away, they won't get away with it. And so Jesus says, verse 3, watch yourselves, watch out for those stumbling stones, those things that cause you to trip. And then he goes on to explain how you can avoid stumbling over those people. Here's where grace comes in. So watch yourselves, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. Whatever anyone does to you or says to you, uh, they can't make you do anything back. You get to choose how you respond. Uh, Yes, they may have done the wrong thing to you, but you choose what the next step is. And Jesus tells us here what the right choice is. For the Christian, for the person who has understood God's free gift, uh, the godly choice is to offer grace, to forgive. If he sins, he needs to change and so for his good, step one is to rebuke him, to tell him that he's wrong, that he needs to stop, that he needs to to, uh, repent. He may not be aware of what he's done. You may need to tell him. How do you go at that step? My experience is people are far more likely to overlook an offence that someone makes against them than they are to actually confront it and to rebuke. 
I'm like that. I don't want to make waves. I don't want to put the relationship under any pressure. Maybe I'm just being overly sensitive. Maybe it's not their problem. Maybe it's my problem. As I've spoken to in, within different home groups about this, uh, most people struggle to come up with one example of when they've actually confronted someone, when they've been sinned against. Now, I'm not saying that every single word that upsets you should be confronted. I think probably, realistically, there's lots of things we should overlook, uh, that we should accept in people. A lot of the time, words are said and it really is our problem, the way we react. But there are bigger things that really should be addressed, especially among us as a church community. People sin against us. People put stumbling blocks in front of us and for their godliness and for our spiritual and mental health as well, we should bring it to their attention. From experience I know that when we bottle these things up, they become a stumbling block for us. We pretend that we've moved on, we pretend that we've overlooked it, we pretend that we've swept it under the rug, but we haven't. Uh, Bitterness bubbles... Resentment grows, anger builds and our relationship with that person, even if it's all nice on the surface, is actually worse than if we'd brought it out into the open to begin with. We're tempted to shortcut the process, to sidestep Jesus' process because we think it's going to be easier and better. Sometimes we'll even say we've forgiven someone before they've actually repented. Rebuking is something I don't think we're very good at. But Jesus says we need to do it. It may not be a wagging finger. It may be something like, you may not realise this, but when you said that to me, I felt really hurt. It made me feel... Worthless, upset, uncomfortable. And when you say that, you're you're giving the relationship a chance to be restored. And you're actually missing the stumbling block that Jesus says this person has put before you. You're, You're managing to step around it. You're giving them the opportunity to repent and for you to forgive. Well, that's the first step, isn't it? Rebuking the sin. For many of us, that's the hard bit. But it's only step one to fix the relationship. Jesus goes on to tell us uh, part two. If he repents, if he actually does recognise his behaviour and change it and apologise to you and ask for your forgiveness, then Jesus commands us to forgive him. It's to be gone, it's to be forgotten, it's never to be brought up again, it's never to be dwelt on, it's never to be used as ammunition in a future argument, it's to be gone. And so what all of this means is that forgiveness can only come with repentance. Forgiveness can only come with repentance in human relationships. If someone sins against you but is not repentant, There are lots of things that you can do. But I want to say, I want to suggest that forgiveness is not one of them. If someone sins against you but isn't repentant, forgiveness is not something you can offer them. You can love them, 
You can pray for them, you can serve them, you can want good things for them. But forgiveness is about restoring a relationship. That can't be one-sided. It has to begin with repentance. In Ephesians 4.32, we're commanded to forgive as the Lord forgives us. On what condition does God forgive us? He forgives us when we repent and not before. And we're to forgive as well. It may be hard to confront the sin, but Jesus commands us to confront the sin, give the person the opportunity to repent And secondly, we're commanded to forgive any sin against us when someone repents. Any sin. Even if he does the same thing seven times in one day, which is interesting, isn't it? If someone comes to you seven times and says, I was sorry the first time I did it, does it again? I'm sorry for the second time I did it, does it again? So, Seven times he asks for repentance means seven times he's done the same thing against you. You'd you'd have to start wondering whether he's really sincere, wouldn't you? And yet Jesus says, yeah, you've still got to keep forgiving. But But to the person who has understood God's forgiveness, for them, the person who's recognising, has recognised the enormity of their own sin, and how he keeps on sinning. Surely, more than seven times a day, we sin and has recognised that God still accepts him and God still counts him as forgiven. He is to respond with grace. Seven times in one day. Les Miserables tells the story of Jean Valjean, the French prisoner who's shown grace and is ultimately transformed by forgiveness. He serves 19 years in jail for stealing bread. He's released. He can't find anywhere to stay. For four days he wanders the countryside, hungry and cold, until a kindly bishop takes him in. That night he lies in bed until the family goes to sleep. Then he gets up, he hunts through the cupboards, steals the family silver and creeps off into the darkness. That's a terrible betrayal. Before long he's caught, the next morning he's back at the bishop's doorstep held firm by three policemen who are ready to put him away for life. How will the bishop respond? Uh, He says, so here you are, he cried to Valjean. I'm delighted to see you. Had you forgotten that I gave you the candlesticks as well? Jean Valjean's eyes had widened. He was now staring at the old man with an expression no words can convey. Valjean was no thief, the bishop assured the policeman. The silver was my gift to him. When the police withdrew, the bishop gave the candlesticks to his guest, now speechless and trembling. Do not forget, said the bishop, to use the money to make yourself an honest man. The power of forgiveness. When every human instinct cried out for revenge changed his life. It melted his defences and he vowed to help others. That's the sort of forgiveness Jesus calls us to. Life-changing grace. When the giver has experienced grace, he's able to offer that grace to others. Do you experience grace like that from God? Are you offering it like that to others? 
Well, for once the disciples seem to catch the enormity of what Jesus is saying. And when they do, they realise how incapable they are of achieving it. Uh, Their response in verse 5 is, increase our faith. We need more resources to do what you're saying. We need faith to forgive. It's an interesting response, isn't it? Why faith? Why not power? Why not grace? What's the connection between faith and forgiveness? Well, firstly, to be able to let go of anger and your sense of justice, you need to trust that God is the God of justice. It takes faith to trust that God will deal justly with the sinner and you can just let it go. It takes faith. Secondly, to be able to forgive like that, to let it go, takes faith. Uh, Faith that God promises that his way is right. It takes faith to believe that when God says you need to forgive, that's going to be in your best interests to forgive than to hold on. It takes faith that forgiving will bring you healing and restoration more than vengeance and getting even will. It takes faith. Thirdly, to be able to dispense grace, you need to have understood grace. You need to have experienced God's grace for yourself. Uh, That takes faith as well, to trust his promises of unconditional forgiveness. It takes faith to forgive like this. Uh, But Jesus replies, it's not about how much faith, even a little faith is enough. Uh, A little faith can do amazing things. It's more about who your faith is placed in. When you trust God, God's resources are enough to even enable you of tiny faith to forgive as gracefully as Jesus is describing. Well, the second section is about understanding grace and how it relates to you. Jesus tells a parable about grace. Now, you may think this doesn't seem like a parable about grace. Maybe even the opposite. But let me try and prove it to you. Think about a master and a slave, says Jesus, verse 7. A slave's job is to work all day in the field and then come in, uh, keep working, prepare dinner for his master. And only then does he get to think about his own dinner. A master does not say to the slave, thanks for weeding the field today, because you've done such a good job, let me serve you. master doesn't say that. That's ridiculous. Whatever a slave has done, it was simply part of his duty. There are no jobs that earned the slave special favours. It doesn't work like that. And it's the same with us and God. Do you see what Jesus says in verse 10? So, so you also, when you've done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. Unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. When we understand grace, we recognise we've done nothing. We've earned nothing from God. We're sinful through and through. There are no levels of acceptability. No one is more deserving of forgiveness than anyone else. No one can say that they've cooperated with God for their salvation. 100% of people are saved by 100% grace. 100% of us are unworthy. 
That's not a very popular message in the world today. The world talks about the importance of positive self-image. Humanistic psychologists and counsellors say we need to be thinking positive thoughts about ourselves. This sort of talk is destructive of self-esteem. But only the Christian can say with a smile on his face, I'm unworthy. I don't deserve forgiveness. I never have. I never will. But I've been forgiven. We understand grace when we see ourselves in the right light. No matter who you are or what you've done or said, how many letters you have after your name or titles before, how much money you've donated, how many people you've led to the Lord, when we understand grace, we say, I'm only an unworthy servant. I've only done my duty. When was the last time you caught a glimpse of God's amazing grace to you? When was the last time you saw the dark shadow of your sin and stubbornness and yet at the same time the brilliant, radiant brightness of God's goodness and forgiveness? Was it a word in a song? Was it a line that Jake or someone else prayed that just made you stop and you held your breath? If you're anything like me, it's a glimpse that makes you both weep and smile at the same time. It's often only a glimpse, a second, and you wish there was more of it, but it's sweet and it's deep and it's rich and it's one of the great things about being a Christian, isn't it? Catching a glimpse of grace. I'm an unworthy servant. Well, moving on, Jesus has told a parable about understanding grace now. We get to see a living example. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He comes into a village, ten lepers yell to him. They have enough faith to cry, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. They're unworthy servants. They deserve nothing but pity. Jesus does have pity, verse 14. Go, show yourself to the priests they'll they'll decide whether you've been cleansed and each one, all ten took Jesus at his word they headed for Jerusalem where the priests were even before they'd been healed look at what verse 14 says it says as they went they were cleansed they had faith that was evidence as they evidenced as they started walking and so they were cleansed They knew they needed grace, they needed pity from Jesus and he showed them grace. That's not the end of the story because there's a third part to understanding grace. It's about responding appropriately to grace. Ten lepers are cured but there's one leper who responds in a special way. If anything he's the lowest of the low, he's not only a leper, he's a Samaritan. Maybe that's why he responds the way he does. One of them when he saw he was healed came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. Jesus asked, 
Were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, Rise and go, your faith has made you well. The right response when, uh, to someone who's offered you grace is gratitude. He praises God, he thanks Jesus. And it seems as if this guy is responding in a deeper way than the rest. All of them had faith. But at the end, Jesus says to this one, rise and go, your faith has made you well, or saved you. It's the same word, which can be a little confusing. Your faith has saved you, could be a way we translate it. This seems to be something extra that the other nine didn't get. Not only has his faith healed him of leprosy, but it seems as if he's recognised in Jesus something uh, that Jesus is the one who can forgive him. And so Jesus says he's saved. Maybe you need to respond like that leper, to recognise that you need grace and that Jesus is the one who offers it. Today's a great day to do that. To understand grace, you need to understand yourself, that you need grace, that you're undeserving, that you're an unworthy servant. And to understand grace, you need to understand the one who offers it. To respond to God with thanks and praise. When you understand grace, you can joyfully wear the grin of someone who knows the best secret in the world. It's nonsense, isn't it? The nonsense that someone who deserves to be punished is free instead. That someone who deserves to be an enemy is a friend. It's a wonderful nonsense that Christians get to spend their life understanding. But not just understanding it, we then get to show it by giving it, living a life of grace, responding to others with the forgiveness, the unconditional forgiveness that God himself gives us. We get to live a life of grace somewhat like that of Gordon Wilson. Gordon Wilson was a committed Methodist living in Northern Ireland in the 1980s. In 1987 an IRA bomb exploded in the middle of a group of Protestants gathered on Veterans Day. 11 died, 63 were wounded. The bomb buried Wilson and his 20-year-old daughter under five feet of concrete and brick. Daddy, I love you very much were the last words Marie spoke as she held her father's hand as they waited for rescuers. She died a few hours after being rescued in hospital. Gordon survived. A newspaper later proclaimed, no one remembers what politicians had to say at that time. No one who heard Gordon Wilson will ever forget what he said. His grace towered over the miserable justification of the bombers. Speaking from his hospital bed, Wilson said, I've lost my daughter but I bear no grudge. Bitter talk is not going to bring Marie Wilson back to life. I shall pray tonight and every night that God will forgive them. His daughter's last words were words of love and Gordon Wilson was determined to live that love out. After his release from hospital, he, was, he led a crusade for Protestant-Catholic reconciliation because of the publicity. Protestant extremists who had planned 
uh, a revenge bombing decided that that would be foolish and so they didn't. Uh, Wilson wrote a book about his daughter, spoke out about violence and constantly repeated his refrain, love is the bottom line. He met with the IRA. He asked them to lay down their arms. I know that you've lost loved ones just like me, he said. Surely enough is enough. Enough blood has been spilled. The Irish Republic ultimately made Wilson a member of its Senate. When he died in 1995, the Irish Republic, Northern Ireland and all of Great Britain honoured this, this ordinary Christian who gained fame for his uncommon spirit of grace. Philip Yancey writes, to bless the people who have oppressed our spirits, emotionally deprived us or in other ways handicapped us is the most extraordinary work any of us will ever do. God has forgiven you. Will you forgive others? You have been shown grace. Will you show grace? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to understand grace and you would help us to offer it for your glory. Amen.